One of the most cited reasons for why someone is not a Christian, one of the most cited reasons why someone is not a Christian is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Ask someone on the street and they're likely to say that Christians are hypocrites. They'll say that Christians, they're just as bad as everyone else, but they think they're better than everyone. I mean, that's a very, if any of you have done apologetics, shared your faith in school or in the workplace, you've probably heard that line more than once. And while sociologists and historians have debunked many of these claims, I mean, there's books written on this, Christians are far less hypocritical than many suggest, there is some truth in the accusation. Hypocrisy is an issue that we wrestle with. But before we get to that, let's define what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is like wearing a mask. So I see, uh, we, you know, my, our kids here in the, in the congregation, right? We celebrated or some celebrated Halloween or in our house we say Reformation Day. And you put on costumes and you wear masks, right? And you pretend to be something other than what you actually are. In the Greek theater, hypocrites were stage actors. Hypocrites were the, the actors, and in the Greek theater, they would put on plaster masks, and then they would pretend to be a character in the play. That's what a hypocrite was, someone who put on a mask and pretended to be something that they weren't. So when we speak of hypocrisy, we're talking about things being different from what they appear to be. Thus, a hypocrite is a person who puts on uh, a mask, as it were, and pretends to be something other than what he or she is. The dictionary definition of hypocrisy from Merriam-Webster is a feigning to be what one is not or to believe what one does not. A A feigning, that is a pretending to be what one is not, or to believe what one does not. At its core, hypocrisy is the inability to discern what is fitting for one's belief or station. The Greek, there's two, well, it's one Greek word, but two Greek words put together to make this word uh, uh, hypocrite, and it means under, Hypo and crisis means to judge or to discern. So it's under judging. So the hypocrite's one who's not able to see that the way they're acting is inconsistent with what they profess or with who they are, what they're supposed to do. They're under judging. So at its core, a hypocrite is someone who under judges the difference between their profession and the way that they act. Act. Someone might say, as, uh, as goes the saying, a hypocrite is someone who doesn't walk the walk and talk the talk. Okay, that is a hypocrite. And we should note that hypocrisy, it's not exclusively a Christian problem. It's a human problem, isn't it? Nevertheless, it's always plagued the people of God. Look at any point in the history of the people of God God's people have wrestled with hypocrisy. 
being and acting and doing opposite of who they are as God's people and opposite of what they profess. And this morning we're going to deal with this problem of religious hypocrisy in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is a literary masterpiece. One commentator called it a tour de force. It's a tour de force of, of literary genius. The book of Jonah is filled with irony, with subtext, with Jonah saying one thing, but when you're reading it in light of what he's doing, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's a literary masterpiece. We're just going to skim the surface. But I'm going to argue this morning that what holds all of Jonah together is the theme of religious hypocrisy. And we're going to see that Jonah becomes a foil for the people of Israel as well. That what Jonah does is merely like an individual illustration of what all of Israel was doing in the hypocrisy of their profession and in their ways particularly in respect to Nineveh, as we will see this morning, a pagan nation. So the goal this morning is to confront and deal with our own hypocrisies that we might flourish. Jonah ends with God asking, do you do well? And the book of Jonah is going to end with this open question to us. Do we do well following Jonah's example? Of, of unimaginable hypocrisy? Or would we do well to address those things and return to following God and his way? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And I want to show you particularly three things, that Jonah exposes three areas of religious hypocrisy in our lives. Jonah exposes three areas of religious hypocrisy in our lives. And the first one being that Jonah exposes religious hypocrisy in our callings. In our callings. Number one, Jonah exposes religious hypocrisy in our callings. Now, calling is a technical term for the work that God has assigned you to do. It's a technical term when I say calling. Everyone here has a calling. I look around at each of you. Each of you has a calling. Some callings that we are given are universal. Like, for example, as a human being, we are called to be morally upright creatures following God's laws and commands. But other callings are unique, and some of us have them. Like, some have the calling of motherhood. It's some of the calling of fatherhood. And then it even comes down to the things we do in the world. Like some are called to be businessmen or businesswomen. Others called to be teachers or students or doctors or ministers. We all have a call from God that we are to live in and to do. Now Jonah had a very special calling. God called Jonah to be his prophet, his messenger, to speak his word, both to Israel and even to the nations, as we will see here in Nineveh. Jonah served during the reign of Jeroboam II, and he's serving again 
nor the it, we say Israel now in this period of time, which was the northern ten tribes. So that can be a little confusing when you're studying scripture. Sometimes Israel is referring to the whole people of God. Sometimes it's referring to the northern ten tribes. So if you're reading the prophets for yourself, you have to ask: Are are we reading before the split of the kingdom after Solomon or before? But here. Jonah is serving Israel, that is the northern ten tribes, during the days of Jeroboam II. And these were days of prosperity for Israel. It's a day we read in 2 Kings that the borders of Israel are expanding. They're gaining more territory. They're flourishing and prospering. However, at the same time that this prospering is going on, a threat is rising in the east, and that is the Assyrian Empire. And Assyria is rising on the world stage as the dominant power. Nineveh is the seat of the worship of Ishtar, the god of war. And they are doing raids. They're running raids to the, in the various nations, including Israel, And they are becoming the chief threat and the chief enemy for God's people. And let it be known that Assyria was a brutal empire. A brutal empire. You know, we've seen, you know, horrible images of of, uh, Islamic extremists burning Christians, right? Or beheading Christians. The Assyrians would use brutal tactics to threaten and coerce the nations to bow, including hanging people from poles so they would die a slow and miserable death. It's it's like a piece of meat skewered on a steak. They would full, I mean, there's kids here, I'll stop there. Against this backdrop, God calls Jonah to preach in the heart of this enemy nation. Jonah, the book, begins with these words. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But this calling was too much for Jonah. And we read in verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah runs in the exact opposite of direction. Jonah says, go here. Or God tells Jonah, go here. And Jonah goes here. He goes in the exact opposite direction. He flees to Joppa, which is in the west. And then he goes to Tarshish. Somewhere scholars debate where that where Tarshish is, but presumably the western side of the Mediterranean. He's going the other direction. And we see him go down to the inner part of the boat and lay down to sleep. Uh, what one of these interesting flourishes in Jonah one and two is the direction that we see. There's this repeated statement of down, 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 down. If you, if you read, Jonah goes, God tells Jonah to arise. Jonah arises. 
and then goes down. And he goes down to Joppa, down to Tarshish, down into the boat, down in the inner part of the boat, down to sleep. He runs as far from God as he can go. So his journey is complete by the end of the chapter, and after uh, chapter 1. And after sailors discover that Jonah is the reason for this terrible storm that's assailing the ship, they toss him overboard. They toss him overboard, and God appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah up. And Jonah at this time is descending to the depths of Shoal. So here Jonah's hypocrisy is revealed in that he refused to obey his calling. Jonah had the holy calling to be one of God's prophets. And the prophet's job was to go where God tells him to go, to do what God tells him to do, and to say what God tells him to say in fleeing from God's presence. Jonah is diametrically opposing his calling. He's being a total hypocrite. And in doing so, Jonah illustrates Israel's problem at large. The northern kingdom was called to worship God in Jerusalem. But if you recall when when we worked through First and Second Kings, what was the chief sin of the northern kingdom? They called it the sin of Jeroboam. He set up his own worship of Yahweh and Bethel and Dan so that his people wouldn't go back to the southern kingdom and remember the good old days. They set up their own Yahweh worship. They worshiped in the name of the Lord, but they did it their own way. The sin of Jeroboam. More than that, you see that repeated phrase in the kings of the northern kings that each did evil in the sight of God. And they led Israel in sin. So like Jonah's descent to the deep, Israel's running away from God and descending deeper and deeper in sin to the very depths of Sheol itself. Israel's religious hypocrisy was most clearly seen in the abdication of their God-given calling to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. They abandoned their mission, their missional calling entirely. They were hypocrites because they bore the name of God's people, but they did not practice the principal calling that God gave them. And this is where it comes home for us as well. Jonah is a picture of Christians who reject their calling too. We each have a God-given calling, as I've said. We have callings in respect to the church, in respect to family. We have callings in respect to society. And as Jonah had a specific mission calling, I want to focus on that for us. What's the nature of your calling in respect to the church. What is that calling that God has given to each one of us in respect to the church? Jesus gives us the Great Commission, does he not? Just as God sent Jonah into foreign lands and pagan nations, 
God sends us too. And God gave his disciples the commission to make disciples. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This disciple-making mission is our shared vocational calling as the church. Now, we each have different gifts and roles in that, but it's our shared calling. It's not an optional calling. You cannot be a Christian if you are not participating in that calling. When we gather on the Lord's days, we are making disciples of one another. We are participating in that calling. So if you're a Christian, you become part of this disciple-making mission. And relatedly then, in terms of spiritual gifts, God gives each of us gifts to edify one another so that when we're not here, the body is hurting because we're not building each other up in love as we're supposed to. And the early church wrestled with this at time. You know, Corinth, they were dealing with who, what, what are the most important gifts? Who has the, I, my gifts are better than your, your gifts. And they were using them for the wrong reasons, for, for vanity, for pride, for selfish ambition to prop themselves up against others. And Paul had to remind them that these spiritual gifts are for the common good. They're for the common good. We have things for the good of the rest of the body. And in 1 Corinthians 14, he tells them to strive to excel in building up the church. Strive to excel in building up the church. So then we become like Jonah if having that calling, we say we treat the, the body of Christ as an optional bonus. We are hypocrites if we think that way. In fact, we hurt as the body when we're not all using our gifts. Paul had to exhort the church of Ephesus to speak the truth and love, to build one another up. He says in Ephesians 4 that it's in our mutual sharing of these gifts that when each part is working properly, the body builds itself up in love. And unfortunately, I mean, every church is at some level of dysfunction because we're not in glory yet. But we become dysfunctional when we, when we all fail to do our part. And the body can't grow healthy and strong. And it was a problem even in the early church. That's why the writer of Hebrews has to say, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. As we look at church today, even for Christians that I would, I would say visibly seem to be mature, at least from an, an outward perspective, or go to a good church, church is treated as an optional thing, that when it works with my schedule. But when we do that, we are hypocrites 
just like Jonah because we are abandoning our primary, primary call as the people of God to be disciple makers and to use our gifts to encourage one another. You know, that's why if, if you guys are gone for any length of time, you're going to get a call from me or, or Peter because we love you and we want to see our church together flourish. We want you to participate because God's called us to do that. And we, we, we hurt when you're absent. That doesn't mean that, the, you, you, uh, you know, there's never a, a time when you have to not be at church. But the point is that our, our, our goal, our heart should be to be here, to be present, to participate. Because you matter to everyone else. It matters that you're here because you have things to share and ways to encourage one another. You matter to one another. I mean, look around. This is your family. And we hurt when we don't see you. So hypocrisy enters in when Christians begin to treat this mission as an optional exercise. I pray that we would not be like Jonah, who when God said, do this, Except not, and shoots the exact opposite way. Martin Luther spoke to this problem in Jonah. He he writes that for the Christian or for the sinner who stays in his sin, they become like a wandering, unsettled person. You know, just kind of flitting in in church and flitting out. And they're unsettled and unstable. And he says, The fact that Jonah runs away to sea with no particular destination in mind denotes that the sinner fleeing from God follows no definite goal, but wanders and strays, prompted by fret by the flesh and the world, wherever the devil leads and urges him to go. Nor does he care whither he goes, except that he does not wish to remain in the country and live in obedience to God. He wants to lead his life according to his own discretion. And like Jonah, too many external Christians, resolute in their hypocrisy, are robbed of real settled purpose. Real settled purpose because they refuse to obey God's calling on their lives. and Instead, they float adrift and lost at sea. The second kind of religious hypocrisy that Jonah exposes is in our prayers. So number two, Jonah exposes religious hypocrisy in our prayers. Interpreting Jonah 2 is extraordinarily complex. The, the whole chapter is a prayer of Jonah's, of Jonah's from the belly of a whale. But there's more going on than meets the eye. On the surface, on the surface, Jonah's Jonah's Prayer appears doctrinally sound. If you read through it, I mean, it looks like pretty good theology. On the surface, Jonah's prayer appears to be filled with true piety. It seems to be coming from a good heart. But underneath, Jonah's prayer exposes his hypocritical blindness. Remember that definition of of hypocrisy, underjudging where you are, what you're saying compared to who you are, what you profess to believe. 
Jonah's prayer must be read in the context of the whole book. In Jonah 2, verse 1, he praises God for being delivered from his distress. Okay, God did appoint a whale and swallow him up, or a fish, a great fish. That's a mystery that we're not going to explore this morning. But God appoints it to deliver Jonah. And that theme of going down, 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 down continues in his prayer. And Jonah concludes by declaring, salvation belongs to the Lord. So all of this appears very pious and very true. However, by reading this prayer in the context of chapter 4, we see that Jonah is not interested in the salvation of others, only himself. Only the, only the Israelites. He's torqued off at God for saving his enemies. When he's saying salvation belongs to the Lord, he's just delighting, well, God saves me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's prayer is a damning example of sophisticated religious hypocrisy. You know, we are so often duped, think, thinking things like false teachers. They're obvious. You know, like they have like a badge that says false teacher. So we, we clearly know to avoid that person. And we can think of piety that way too. Oh, well, they're, you know, they come to church. You know, they dress nice. Their kids behave well. You know, they must be godly. And we can be very sophisticated in covering our sin in a mask of piety, a costume. We know the costume to wear. Jonah's prayer is a kind of pietistic red herring. If you know what a red herring is in logical argumentation, a red herring is, is saying or doing something to avoid the point or to not answer the question. Jonah's prayer is a kind of pietistic red hearing. He's avoiding the issue by saying other things that are true. He's avoiding the core issue by spouting good theology. But he avoids the reason why he's in the belly of the whale in the first place. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were experts in saying what was true in order to avoid the real issues. In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus said two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, by standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisees were masters of sophisticated distraction. But in doing so, they were gross religious 
hypocrites. What justifies man before God is humble repentance, not a list of supposed good deeds. The Pharisees, they should fast. They should tithe. But they were avoiding the issue entirely. They're dead, cold, wicked hearts. Likewise, what is patently missing from Jonah's prayer is repentance. So do you see the sophistication of his hypocrisy? He says a whole bunch of good things. And the problem is not what he says. The problem is what he omits. The problem is what he doesn't say. God despises prayer that does not openly acknowledge one's sin. So you can recite good theology. I met some people that are very good at theology. They're very orthodox in their theology. But when you get to the heart, it's like blinds go up. There's no connection whatsoever. You can recite good theology all day long, but if it doesn't come from a repentant heart, it is worthless in God's estimation. The Bible says that the prayers of a proud heart ignoring sin are an abomination to him. That's about the strongest word you can get in the Bible to talk about God's offense at something, an abomination. Proverbs 28.9 proclaims, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And that's what I argue Jonah is doing here in chapter 2. To avoid religious hypocrisy in our prayers. We must approach God as we really are. I mean, he knows what we really are. There's no, he sees behind the mask. He is not duped. He's not fooled. So what's the point of trying to pretend? Hearts earnest to obey. Hearts humble with confession when we stray. Hearts earnest to obey. Hearts humble with confession when we stray. That's what pleases God in prayer. We can pray these other things that Jonah prayed. But we can't omit our, our failings and our sins. Particularly Jonah, who is in the midst of blatant sin. I mean, he's in the midst of blatant sin. And yet praying to God as if God is not aware of that fact. Rejoicing in a salvation that he thinks is only for him and the Israelites. That's an abomination to the Lord. So we've seen two areas now uh, where Jonah exposes religious hypocrisy, both in our calling and in our prayers. Let's now turn to the third and final way. Jonah exposes religious hypocrisy in our judgments, in our judgments. God gives Jonah a second chance in chapters 3 and 4, which we read this morning in our scripture reading. God commands Jonah once more in 3, 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out 
against it, the message that I tell you. And in the following verse, we read that he goes. Okay, so this time he got up and went in the right direction. So now in chapter 3, we find Jonah in the heart of enemy territory. I don't think it would be beyond a, a proper comparison to say it would be like it'd be like Billy Graham going to Berlin in in the heart of World War II in Nazi Germany. Jonah and the Israelites hated the Assyrians for good reason. They were a brutal and wicked nation to such a degree that God sent Jonah to proclaim destruction, imminent destruction, 40 days, right? God sends Jonah with a message of doom. I mean, that's how bad this nation was. It ranks right up there with Sodom and Gomorrah. Jonah's message was to preach destruction in 40 days. But then that becomes a bit of a puzzle, doesn't it? If Jonah was simply called to go and preach destruction to his enemies, why would he run in the opposite direction? Wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't that be something you would enjoy doing? If you had a bitter foe to pronounce their doom, why would you run in the opposite direction? You see, Jonah knew something about God. Jonah knew that if he preached this message, God would be merciful. And that's what made him so angry. In chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, we read from Jonah, O Lord, is not this what I said? This is after the Ninevites repent. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live Jonah is so entrenched in his hypocrisy that he would rather die than see his enemies saved. He was so hardened against his enemies that when he saw God show them mercy, he was ready to kick the bucket. Jonah's hypocrisy, let's get to the heart of it now. Jonah's hypocrisy is exposed in that he did not judge the Assyrians worthy of mercy. In his eyes, in his judgment, his hypocrisy is revealed in that he did not think the Assyrians worthy of salvation. He thought that their wickedness is beyond the pale of forgiveness. And when God rebuffed that notion, Jonah was furious. He was livid. Religious hypocrisy rears its ugly head 
when we judge others worthy of judgment while justifying, minimizing, or outright ignoring our own sins. Is that not what Jonah is doing? He's ignoring his own sins completely. So he's misjudging, his, he's underjudging his own sins, even as he's underjudging God's mercy, and that that could extend even to the wickedest of Assyrians. It's pure hypocrisy. And as we approach the New Testament, we discover that the Jews did not learn from the book of Jonah. They had the book of Jonah, but they missed the point. We see this in Jesus' ministry in Luke 4, as Jesus is beginning his ministry. He speaks in the synagogue, a salvation going to the Gentiles. Up to that point, those in the synagogue were marveling at his words. They were pleased with what he's hearing. But as soon as Jesus turns, confronting their hypocrisy by what he says, by what uh, he doesn't say it directly, but by talking about salvation going to the Gentiles, what do they do? They are furious and they try to throw him off a cliff. They seek to kill Christ because he was going to show mercy to Gentiles, exposing the religious hypocrisy of their judgments. They did not deem the Gentiles worthy of salvation in their judgment. Now, the early church struggled with Jonas's message as well. The Jew-Gentile problem was a real issue in the church, like, Okay, so these Gentiles are coming in. Do they need to now be like us? Do they need to follow our food laws? Do they need to be circumcised? These were things going on, and the answer was no, because we are made one by faith in Jesus Christ. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, which is going to supplant circumcision. But they wrestled with this problem. The first general assembly of elders in the history of the church was held in Jerusalem in Acts 15 to deal with Jew-Gentile relations of bitterness and enmity and distrust. The apostles wrote extensively concerning the issue, particularly Paul, in letters like Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. The backdrop of these letters are Jew-Gentile issues going on in the church. What does it mean to be a Christian? Paul had to remind them there's one body, that you're fellow citizens and heirs, that you're saints and members of the same household in Christ, by faith in Christ. There's no more distinction between Jew and Gentile in God's house. As we read in our New Testament scripture reading, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, all are one in Christ. We all have access to Christ and are Abraham's offspring, connecting to the Old Testament promises by faith in Jesus Christ. So even the early church had an issue with judgment of what was right and fitting for the people of God, for God's mercy, for salvation. 
and turning to us. Well, Christians today, I think, generally affirm that anyone can be saved. I think most people would say that if you ask them. We don't always act like we profess, do we? While Christians generally affirm that anyone can be saved, we don't always act like it, do we? Let me ask you a question. Who do you think is outside of God's mercy? Who is beyond redemption in your judgment? Now, it's easy to say the right answer, isn't it? I I could just pull each one. You'd say, no one. No one, right? However, we are often far from that truth in the judgments of our hearts, aren't we? There are people we hate. There are people we despise. There are people we think functionally are beyond hope of redemption. But to miss this and to miss this hypocrisy, friends, is to miss the gospel itself. As Jesus says, with the measure you use, so will you be judged. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. Or as Paul wrote, the former murderer, Paul, the former murderer and persecutor of the church, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners with whom I am the foremost. Christ came to save murderers and adulterers. Christ came to save tax collectors and thieves. Christ came to save and redeem even those that from all appearances seem to be the most unsavable, the very people seeking to burn our churches down and slaughter our people to the four corners of the earth like the Apostle Paul. God is even going to save some of such people. Until we treat every person as redeemable every person as redeemable we have missed the gospel entirely and we make hypocrites of our profession the call is to repent and believe in the gospel and that's for anyone and in that sense Jonah was right in his prayer salvation belongs to the Lord. I want to conclude with this question of do you do well? Do you do well? And I want to leave that with you this morning. Jonah's religious hypocrisy ascends to ridiculous heights. It almost becomes comedic by the end of the book, doesn't it? I mean, Jonah, the prophet of God. Jonah, one who has been picked out from a nation to speak God's word is having a pity party at the end of the book when the word that went forth from his mouth actually had spiritual effect. He's having a pity party. 
on the one hand, he's mad at God for showing mercy to Nineveh. And on the other hand, he's angry with God for destroying the little shade plant that was giving him some shade while he's sitting on the hill, stubbornly expecting God to still destroy Nineveh. I mean, it's a comedic, it's a ridiculous picture. His priorities were entirely backwards. I mean, you can't underjudge, you can't be much more of a hypocrite than Jonah, than what he's displaying here. And so the book concludes with God questioning Jonah. Read verses, chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also, much cattle. The book of Jonah ends, as it were, with an open question to the reader, to each one of us. Do you do well in following Jonah's example? And that's my question to you. Do you do well in following Jonah's example? Jonah's story exposes his hypocrisy to his calling, his hypocrisy in his prayers, and his hypocrisy in his judgments of who is worthy of mercy. Now the author turns to you. Do you do well to be angry? Now, there is, of course, a place for righteous anger. But I argue that because we have missed the point on our vocation so often, on our calling, we are not doing all that well as a church, generally speaking, when we look out on the landscape of the church. As I read Christian blogs, news, and social media posts, it seems apparent to me that we have in large measure functionally abandoned our spiritual mission for a political one. We are, as a church, having a pity party because the world's not going the way we want it to go. And that's a sign that we've abandoned our spiritual mission for a political one. We want our actions to make things change in society. And we're whining about it as a general uh, block (laughs) as Christians on social media, aren't we? We see it all the time. We are far more concerned with owning the libs, you know, kind of getting one over on the liberals, right? Than winning them to Christ, aren't we? We're far more entertained by owning the liberals than winning them to Jesus Christ. The tone of mocking political enemies and secular opponents far exceeds that of our winsome zeal for winning them with the gospel. I believe that functionally we are treating an entire block of people as unredeemable and beyond the pale of God's mercy. And we talk about them and treat them as such. How opposite is what's going on than what Jesus told us to do as part of our mission, to love our enemies. Jonah completely failed this one. 
and we are failing in large measure to love our enemies, do good to those who hate you. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who persecute you. I'm having a hard time squaring Jesus' teaching with so much of what I see going on in the Christian landscape today. Moreover, Jesus has given us a collective mission, as we've said already, to bring the gospel to the nations, not to judge them now, not to take God's place. You know, we desperately need a fresh wind of revival. I think we can all say amen to that. But it's not going to come by mocking people into the kingdom of God. Revival is not going to come by mocking our enemies and treating them as beyond the deserving of God's merciful salvation. So I ask you, and I ask this just generally to our Christian environment that we're in, do you do well to run away from your God-given calling? Do you do well to avoid your own sin issues, your own issues, with a smokescreen of piety? Do you do well to judge your enemies as beyond God's mercy and treating them as such when Jesus says, by the measure in which you judge, you will be judged also? If you go about your days judging others as unworthy of the mercy of God, what kind of judgment is going to come upon you on the last day? God is mercifully confronting our religious hypocrisy in the book of Jonah. And if we want to flourish now and eternity, we will do well to heed this message. As the book ends with a question to the reader, I will end that with you as well. Do you do well to stew in your hypocrisy? Let's pray.